0: All right. So we are talking about Christian dating and the father's headship. My name is Thaddeus and welcome to the Theotivity Podcast. I'm glad that you've joined me for today's episode. We're talking about dating and uh, why? Because, well, I guess Christian creatives that are singles need to date and find some wives and, you know, husbands and all that stuff. So hopefully I can give you some, uh, you know, thoughts that are helpful for that. Uh, This is actually going to be part one of a two-parter on this and just different thoughts on dating that hopefully you'll find helpful so let's get started the theotivity podcast theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together here you'll find audio narration of articles episodes exploring the faith culture the arts and media systematic theology apologetics guest interviews with christian thinkers creatives pastors theologians and much more At Theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. All right. So this episode is intended for Christian singles and in particular, Christian men who are seeking to date a young lady without first seeking her father's consent and blessing. Right now note what I'm not arguing for, because I can already hear the objections and all of the but what ifs, right? What I'm not arguing for is that you go ask her father for a hand in marriage before she even knows who you are or that you're interested, right? Don't do that. You'd rightly receive some very strange looks. And, you know, perhaps if you're in the US South, perhaps you'd be staring down the wrong end of a shotgun. So don't do that. You should at least know that you're interested in the young lady and also that she's interested, right? So this is relating to some point at which you both have figured out at least that much, right? That you're interested in seeing where this could lead and want to move on from just checking things out to formally pursuing a dating relationship. So what I'm arguing for is that before you make that move towards dating, there's a necessary step that comes before that, which is to seek her father's consent and blessing to pursue his daughter, especially if he is a godly man. And I have a feeling that this content may upset some Christians who perhaps have taken for granted our culture's approach to dating, which tends to be, you know, non-committal and loose. However, we have to strive to let the Bible speak to every area of our lives, even this one. And while dating is not in the Bible, uh, nor does it, you know, the Bible doesn't prescribe one particular way of finding a mate. So, for example, arranged marriages versus courting, etc. Right. Uh, it does, however, give us principles from which we can glean wisdom. And much of the pushback, I think, on these thoughts that I'm going to be presenting here are going to be of the sorts that consider it perhaps old-fashioned or outdated. However, this sort of chronological snobbery is no real argument against what I'm saying here. And we have to ask, How's our culture's secular approach to dating been working out? Huh? I mean, look at the high rates of divorce, compromise, and relational disaster. Christians who have uncritically adopted our culture's approach look no different to the world's standards. So biblical wisdom is never old-fashioned or outdated, but it's often countercultural. So here's my proposal. Consider these passages that I'm going to lay out today. And if you should disagree, why? You see, we need wisdom that is based on the Bible, right? And if you're going to disagree with what I'm presenting here, well, then you should be seeking what is a better and wiser and more biblical way to proceed. So it's fine. If you disagree with what my opinions are here based on scriptures, well then propose something better, propose something more biblical. Now, this is a topic that I've uh, discussed with, with several uh, Christian singles that have come to me for advice or just come up in conversation. So these are some of my thoughts that uh, I've thought about this particular matter, according to scripture, reflecting on what the Bible teaches and trying to apply that to this particular area. The first one is going to be from Numbers 30, verses 3 to 5. It says this, If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge, while within her father's house house, in her youth, and her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she has bound herself, and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. Interesting text, especially for the topic that we're talking about. This section is about vows with respect to women, particularly women who are still under their father's household. So from the text, you see two principles uh, in the text. Firstly, that an unmarried woman is under the headship of her father. You see then verses three to six, right? Um, So that any vows or pledges that she would make come under his authority. He is to care for her and to be responsible for her in regards to what she vows or pledges herself towards. And secondly, clearly, we see from this passage that when she marries, her husband is now her head. And you see that later on in the passage from verses six to 16. It explains that that responsibility moves from the father to the husband. So thus, from this, we can see why respecting the headship of her father is a really important thing to do, as he is given headship over his daughter for as long as she is unmarried and and he is the one who should be giving guidance to her in regards to vowing or pledging herself to different things. And I would categorize dating within that sphere, because it's a sort of pledge where two people pledge themselves to each other. It's not a covenant, right? So dating is different to a covenant. Um, but there are still expectations of faithfulness, mutual respect, reciprocity, affections, etc. Right? Uh, and these are all related closely to a sort of pledge. To say that something like dating is not included within this uh, is to put it in a category of lesser importance than, than let's say maybe paying back a loan, right? Uh, which is a pledge of re- repaying money lent. Uh, which I think most boyfriends and girlfriends today would say is not a very satisfying <laughs> outlook on godly dating, since it implies a level of non commitment that would be ex- unacceptable to most people who are dating, right? When you're dating, you expect a certain level of faithfulness, mutual respect, reciprocity, and affections and a- exclusivity as well, right? So it is a sort of pledge. So, therefore, If our father is, according to this passage in Numbers, if a father is to be involved in the making of commitments in his daughter's life, would it not also be logical that he should be involved in the making of a commitment such as dating? Furthermore, to disregard this because, you know, just saying, oh, well, that's the Old Testament law, Thad, right? That's a bad hermeneutic. You see, the sections of the law which are not binding on us today are because Christ has fulfilled them, right? So, for example, the sacrificial laws, the temple laws concerning Israel's worship in the temple, right? Um, however, the rest of the law still remains binding on the Christian conscience. You see, Christ has fulfilled certain aspects of the law, such as the sacrificial ceremonial law, right? Because He is the greater sacrifice, He is the true temple, etc. But the rest of the law still remains binding. Actually, in one way, all of the law is still binding. It's just either it's fulfilled in Christ or it's continued to be fulfilled with us, Um, such as the moral law. We are still bound to the moral law, the Ten Commandments, for example, right? Um, We're not Marcionites. And Marcion, he was an old heretic in the early church. Um, And that old heresy has invaded the modern church again, which is trying to unhitch the Old Testament, right? But... You see, that's not right, because Paul actually asked the question in Romans 3.31. He says this, do we then overthrow the law by this faith, by our faith? He says, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Right. So while we know that we're not justified by the law, the law cannot justify us, the Old Testament law still has an abiding function of teaching us what pleases God and aiding us in our sanctification. See, Christians are not antinomians. Anti meaning against, nomos meaning law, right? We're not anti law. We still affirm the goodness of God's law. Actually, Paul affirms the goodness of God's law in 1 Timothy 1 8, saying that we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, right? So, gleaning principles from the Old Testament law, such as this one in Numbers 30, that teaches about a father's responsibility. Over his daughter, over his, you know, his headship and care of his daughter, especially in terms of regulating what she pledges herself to, I think, is still applicable for us today. We should assume continuity between the testaments and not discontinuity. You see, a lot of the the problem in the modern church is that they, um, a lot of Christians today, assume a discontinuity between the testaments. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right, um, the parts of the law which we see as fulfilled in Christ—it's only because the New Testament tells us so. So, therefore, if you're going to make an argument that this was just a cultural thing or something done away with in the Old Testament, right—that now in the New Covenant this is, doesn't apply—then you have to have some sort of New Testament grounding for thinking like that, uh, which it doesn't seem to be, since the New Testament seems to continue this line of thought, of thought which I'm going to show later on down below as we continue in this, okay? Um, actually, if you take that to this logical conclusion and do like what a lot of Christians do and just unhitch the Old Testament, you actually don't have, you, you lose a lot. For example, you lose the laws against um, uh, bestiality, right? <laughs> there's, there's no passage in the New Testament that talks about that. So therefore, does that make it okay? No, we assume continuity that because the New Testament does not abrogate those laws, they still are binding, right? So similarly, gleaning principles from this passage in Numbers, I think is a very valid way to do things, right? And we need to take all of scripture into account. And I'm going to show actually from the New Testament to how I think this is a principle that still holds. For example, in Matthew 19, verses four to six, right? Um, Jesus there, he's responding to a question that the Pharisees are asking regarding divorce. And he answers them this way. He says, Have you not read what he, that, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. So here in our passage, Jesus in Matthew nineteen five, he's quoting from Genesis 2, uh, 24, that a man should leave his father and his mother's household and be joined to his wife. And the implication is that she does the same since the two coming together in marriage forms a new one flesh union, a new household, right? Thus the woman until she is married is under her father's household. Therefore, as you know, she's she's not one flesh with you. I'm speaking to the Christian men listening. Until marriage, then uh, she's under her father's household until that time. So it's logical that you'd owe that you'd owe it to her dad to inform him and to seek his blessing. You see, she doesn't yet belong to you until you've made a covenant, and there's been a leaving and cleaving, as the old King James puts it, right, um, which happens upon marriage. Thus, you know, you shouldn't act as if she's yours already. Note also that this implies a knowledge of the above point of the father's headship over his children. See, Jesus affirms the abiding validity of the Old Testament law. See, for example, Matthew 5, 17 and Luke 17, 17, and the creational order of families. Jesus reaffirms that too. You see, too many young men seeking to woo a young lady act as if they have no obligation to the young lady's father to whom God has tasked with the protection and care of his daughter. And even further, some young men want to act as if they already have become one flesh with the young lady when no covenant has yet been made. Then later in life, if he should have daughters of his own, let's say, uh, would feel wronged and slighted if they were to go behind his back and shirk his headship. This shouldn't be so. Respect his headship and recognize that this young lady belongs to his household until you should make her your wife. Okay, so I know by now some of the young Christian men, single men, might be squirming in their seats, uh, but we got some more here. right? So Jeremiah 29, verse 6. The Lord commands his people to take wives and to have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Now, specifically, I wanted us to um, to zoom in on this phrase: "Give your daughters in marriage." That's important here. It implies that daughters were to be given in marriage by their fathers. Thus, uh, daughters are under their father's care, and it is his role, it is the role of a father, to give his daughter away. They didn't give themselves away. And by the way, this is why in modern Christian weddings, this, this tradition even holds fast today, right? That, you know, oftentimes the pastor will ask, who gives this um, this young lady away? And the father will respond, I do, right? Uh, or I and uh, her, her mother do, right? This is still a biblical principle that stands. And how can a father do that if he's not involved in the dating relationship? Think about this, Right? How is it honoring to the father if the couple only decides to involve him after they've already hooked up and made heart attachments and pledges to one another? You see, that's not respecting him as an authority figure. That's treating him like a younger brother who you just inform of what you're doing, but you're not too concerned with getting his approval or permission. You see, this is what a lot of Christians, singles, don't realize. This giving away process happens way before the wedding day. And it's and and by not involving her dad up front, you gotta ask yourself, what are you seeing? Doesn't it imply that you don't see him as the one to give away his little girl? Now, many young men actually shoot themselves in the foot and wonder why they have such a terrible relationship with their in-laws later on. Well, put yourself in the father's shoes. How can you give away your daughter joyfully to a boy who has no respect for your headship and authority? So So if you're dating where there's no approval from the father, especially in the case where there's a godly Christian father, that's akin to poaching actually. You're hunting where you don't have a license. So don't be a poacher. Now, there are some exceptions for situations where there's a broken family or an ungodly father in the home. In such cases, the young man should still try his best to respect the spiritual authority figures In the young lady's life, whether that be an uncle, a pastor, a small group leader, etc., right? She is still under authority, and you should respect and honor that. If you expect her to respect your authority and headship, should you get married later, you gotta consider that, right? So contrary to our you know woke culture these days, authority structures are not inherently oppressive and evil. Okay, we live in a society and a culture that seems to think that way but they are established by God, even though you know, they may be corrupted by sin. Right, The structures themselves are part of God's good design and good ordering of society for our own good. And the more that you seek to honor the godly authority structures that God has put in place, the more you'll set yourself up well for when you become the head of your own household one day. Additionally, many young men um, avoid interacting with the young lady's father, even if you know he's a godly one because they want to avoid being accountable to him or having to deal with things that he might differ with them on, right? However, when one becomes a husband and your wife has to submit to your authority, even uh, if she might disagree with some things, you know, as long as you're not leading her into sin, a man who has never had to submit to authority that he disagreed with will not know how to be compassionate to his wife who has to submit to and respect his authority even while disagreeing. And this is why it is important for young men to not be lone wolves and and to be submitted to godly authority in their own lives, such as elders, parents, and spiritual mentors. So perhaps it's a good um, point to just stop and reflect right now. If you're a young man, a young single man, and you are not submitted in any way to any spiritual authorities over your life, that's a bad sign. Now, let me tell you a little bit about my story. Lest you know, you think, that I don't practice what I preach. let me tell you a little bit about my own story and experience. You know, I had dated for a while, according to the principles of our culture and without trying to think biblically about it. And that always ended up in disaster. There was never any clarity, no wisdom or accountability. And there was very minimal family involvement and godly voices around who were close enough to warn me of dangers. I was a fool. And I made a lot of mistakes as a young, foolish, single man, and which I wish I could have done differently now looking back. Now, luckily, when I met my now wife, I had gained a little bit of wisdom, the hard way. I definitely didn't have everything figured out, but I knew enough that doing it the way that I had been doing it in the past was just not working out, right? And when I met the young lady, who is now my beautiful wife, uh, we were not interested in each other at first, Uh, Mainly because uh, we knew nothing of each other but as we got to know each other uh, in more casual group settings um, I started to see these qualities that attracted me to her. However, you know, at that time I wasn't yet convinced I wanted to pursue her, especially since that particular year I was heading to Brazil Um, to a mission organization that had been volunteering at every summer for a few years. And the purpose of that was to figure out actually if God was calling me to move there permanently. So I thought, you know, it wasn't wise to pursue a romantic relationship at that point, right? Uh, Because who knows, I might be leaving the country permanently. Uh, And as providence though would have it, um, when I came back, I was not yet convinced that God was calling me to Brazil at that point. Um, But I also found that my interest in Kylie, my now wife, had peaked. So I started uh, to intentionally observe her in groups. Uh, we'd be together with, you know, from our church and looking for qualities that I valued. And yes, I had a list. And you should have a list too, by the way. Uh, you can't, you see, you can't know what to look for if you don't know what you're looking for, right? Um, by the end of last summer, I decided that I wanted to pursue her. So I asked her out for breakfast to DTR. You know, if you don't know that acronym, it means define the relationship. and. After a pleasant meal and some chit chat, I told her directly and clearly that I was interested in pursuing her romantically. And then I asked her if uh, she was interested in that too. And she reciprocated um, that she was, uh, to which I said, "Okay, well, then I'm going to need your dad's phone number, to which she responded pretty cheerfully good because you were going to get it even if you didn't ask. Now, about a week or so later, I met with her father for coffee for about three hours (laughs) And uh, he came prepared with a folder of 25 questions on everything from my intentions for his daughter to my plans for life, uh, the status of my spiritual walk, some theological questions, my understanding of gender roles and marriage, and also my purity. And you know what? I was delighted. I was really happy to see that because this told me a lot about the caliber of man that her dad was. And I could safely assume that he had invested a lot in bringing up his daughter well also. Right, and at the end of our meeting, we embraced, and you know, he gave us, gave me his and her mom's blessing to pursue Kylie. Now, I think a lot of young men don't see it that way, right? They they see meeting the dad as some scary thing, but let me tell you, that's gonna tell you a lot about the young lady that you're interested in. Meeting her dad is gonna tell you a lot. And our period of dating and courting um, involved our families a lot particularly her family, since my family was in Trinidad, right? And I'm so glad that I did it that way. And right now, today, I enjoy a warm and and great relationship with my in-laws. And they provided a lot of wisdom and insight for us as we dated. And we're figuring out, you know, if this would lead towards marriage. And actually, on our wedding day, my father-in-law was asked if he was sad at all in giving away his only baby girl. And his reply was a very confident no. Uh, that he was actually delighted to be gaining a son-in-law, right? He was able to give away his daughter with joy and confidence because I had respected his headship. You want to do that, right? So don't rob your future father-in-law of that type of joy, especially if he's a godly man, right? So many young Christian men make their future father-in-law suspicious of them during the dating period for no good reason. Don't do that. Okay. Let's continue with some more biblical reasons, right? Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 to 19. It says this, If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city of the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her, and behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity, and yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall say, uh and sorry, and they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the young man and whip him, and they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver, and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel and he shall be and she sorry she shall be his wife he may not divorce her all his days so uh probably a, a not very familiar passage to a lot of people but in this here the laws concerning sexual immorality note here for our purposes that in a charge against a virgin daughter right the father is the one who must bring evidence to defend her chastity, to defend her honor, right? Because he is given charge over her uh, for her protection by God, right? The father's headship implies that he is given charge over his children, and in this case, specifically a daughter, right? For their well-being, protection, and defense against threat, right? That's what this passage is teaching. Uh, This includes the threat of unacceptable male suitors, right? So, hence why especially in cases where there is a godly father or a father figure present, he has to be respected and brought into the dating relationship. The father is given the task by God of defending his daughter's honor. Now, one of the questions my father-in-law asked me when I came uh, to seek his blessing to date Kylie was what rules or boundaries do you have in place to keep yourselves pure during dating? And this is an excellent question. Right? And one which many young men would stumble at because they've never actually thought it through biblically. They may stammer out some half-baked intentions of boundaries that might sound like COVID-19 restrictions, right? Something about keeping six feet apart and wearing a face covering all the time, or something like that, right? Uh, but it's rare today that they would have ever thought of it um, with any sort of intentionality, and even perhaps less rare that they would have thought through it biblically, right? And that would have been me also in earlier years, but thankfully I was prepared. I told him, I don't have an exhaustive like list of do's and don'ts because inevitably you're going to find yourself in some situation that's not on that list, right? Instead, what I have is a biblical conviction based on the concept of covenants. And that means that until I marry your daughter, I'm not in covenant with her and therefore I'm not gonna act like I am. And what that looks like is simple. The only covenant that we share before marriage is that we are brother and sister in the Lord. And thus, whatever I am unwilling to do with my own sister, I will not do with your daughter. So rather than try to memorize a list of do's and don'ts, I'm going to use this principle as a filter. And what that looked like practically is that when we went out in, on dates in public, um, we were never privately, right? Like we give room, and, you know, didn't want to give room for the flesh or the devil. Uh, we went out um, oftentimes over to other couples' houses for dinner or spent time with her family, and did other things like that um, for some of our dates, right? but always in public, never in private, because we don't want to give space for um, our flesh or the devil. Uh, we did hold hands, but no more. Eventually, like as the relationship progressed, and eventually as uh, the relationship continued to progress positively, and uh, you know when we became engaged, uh, we'd give a peck on the cheek, but decided to leave the kiss on the lips for the marriage day, because again. My filter was this, you know, I would never kiss my sister that way, right? So therefore, I wouldn't kiss Kylie that way, even when we were engaged. Uh, And that filter proved to be be a very helpful um, one for me in navigating dating boundaries. It also seemed to please my father-in-law, who I think appreciated that had given some thought to the matter biblically. And perhaps that'll help you as well. I think too often, the question that young men ask are, how is is like how far can I go before it's wrong, but they're they're starting off on the wrong foot already at the get go right the the question shouldn't be how far can I go before it's in right because that that's already saying that you want to push limits right um I think we need to be more conservative than than we think we might need to be uh because those powers of attraction are very very strong, and it's i mean you can just ask anybody who's been in a romantic relationship for a period of time that that gets to be a very strong temptation. And that's the way that God has built us actually. And rightly directed, that is a very strong and good tool that God gives to marriages, right? So back to our point, just know this, right? That if you fail, men, I'm talking to you, if you fail to lead her in purity and dating, right, she's not gonna have any confidence that you're gonna be faithful and pure to her in marriage. And for those who are Believers and are already dating, and maybe you failed in this area, right? Don't like, don't beat yourself up. There's enough grace and forgiveness at the cross for even that, even your feelings in this area, right? Um, but you know, don't don't condemn yourselves, but bring it to the Lord and repent. Turn away from that, but, but know that repentance is turning away, right? You have to turn away from what you were doing and the patterns that led to that compromise, and turn to what will help you to be faithful. So it's never too late to build trust and integrity with your potential future spouse. Okay, so let's continue on in this uh, considering of this topic, right? And let's talk a little bit about honoring parents because I think this topic particularly is geared towards how do you as a potential suitor honor uh, both your own parents and the the young lady's parents, right? So Ephesians 6.1 and Colossians 3.20 they, it commands children to obey their parents and to honor them, right? And Exodus 20, verse 12, and Ephesians 6, 2 command children to honor their parents. So let me ask you this. How is it honoring to parents for the child to enter into a committed relationship which is potentially leading towards a change of their covenant status and involves both families, yet not tell the parents or seek their advice? Right? How is it honoring to say, in effect, I'm willing to take your daughter's safety affections, attention, emotion, and time, but not willing to seek your counsel or blessing in doing so. Does not honoring her father imply that you seek his consent and blessing as he is the one charged by God uh, to be her protector and head, right? You can see, for example, the passages we just covered. Yet many young men, young young Christian men, right, fail to do this and then wonder why they have such terrible relationships with their in-laws in marriage. Oftentimes, it starts before the wedding day. And now, while this is not the be-all, end-all of all in-law relationship building, it definitely makes for an important start, right? The fifth commandment is still binding. Honor yours and her parents that it may go well with you. Now, let's talk about managing his household well, right? Her father is tasked with managing his household well. How do I know this? First Timothy 3, verse 4 and Titus 1, 6 say that an elder must be able to manage his household well and keep his children submissive and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And likewise for deacons in 1 Timothy three twelve. However, these qualifications are not just for elders. You see, elders are not in some supercategory of godly men. This is in fact just the requirements for being a godly man. And that is the type of men that should be appointed as elders. You see, elders serve as an example for godly manhood. 1 Timothy four twelve says that. Timothy, an elder, is commanded to be an example. And Titus, um, chapter two, verse seven, Titus there is to set an example in everything. So therefore, a godly man should be seeking to manage his household well, just like an elder should, right? And keep his kids submissive and free from the charge of misconduct and insubordination, following the example of a biblical elder, right? So therefore, ask yourself this, is the father able to do this if he's kept out of the dating process? I'd say no, right? Now, I know that this concept of asking for the Father's permission and blessing sounds old-fashioned and outdated, right? To our modern secularized culture that is increasingly antagonistic against anything vaguely Christian, but I don't care. I'm not interested in pleasing the culture, pleasing the flesh or seeking approval from anyone else. Our highest aim should be to please the Lord, especially in our holiness. And we are to do all things to the glory of God, even dating. You see, far too many Christians fail to think covenantally about anything. Yet this is the primary way that God relates to people through covenant and how he has established his people to be assembled as a covenant community of faith. Right, That is the church. Covenants govern our relationships with God and with each other. Marriage is a covenant. And the quicker that you can get practice in thinking covenantally, the better better it'll go for you. In marriage. and for those who are still opposed to the co- the counsel that I've given here, right? Let me wrap this up. Basically, I've been arguing to seek the Father's permission, right, and blessing before officially entering into dating. For those who still are opposed to that, I challenge you, right, to go over the passages that I just went over, think and pray about it, and check your heart motives. Why are you opposed to it? Is it because you are convicted? And convinced from scripture that it's not wise? Or has your heart become idolatrous in holding on to a relationship or the prospect of a relationship with a woman that you want to pursue? Is it because you are more interested in the chase than the goal of Christian dating, which is marriage? Do you have, you know, maybe a better, more biblical alternative? I'm not assuming that I have it all put together, right? Perhaps you have a better, more biblical alternative. Well, then have at it, right? If you do, great, go for it. But I hope that in this episode, it's at least giving you some fruitful food for thought on the topic and convince you that you should have some biblical wisdom on how you approach this, right? Let God's word dictate how you date. True manhood and leadership involves doing what is right, even when it's difficult or scary, right? So don't, so, so not doing this, not you know going and seeking the, the father's blessing just because you're nervous to talk to her dad is not an excuse, right? Man up. Uh, manhood involves making decisions which are biblically informed and sometimes, actually oftentimes, not always popular and many times difficult. It involves conviction from scripture and resolve to be faithful and honoring God in all that we do. Uh, we've not been given a, a spirit of fear, right, brothers, but of power, love, and a sound mind so that we would make decisions and lead in a way that's honorable. Right? Modern dating is so influenced by the world and culture it takes a lot to go counter to that. And many many people in the church don't think through dating deeply or scripturally. And sadly, I think much of the Christian dating that's happening today is just like the world. And I believe that you know we are to be set apart and stand differently from the world, not just uncritically adopt its norms. Right? We're to be distinct as God's people. So I know this is not a full treatment of the topic, but hopefully, like I said, is giving you some helpful food for thought on this matter. On the next episode, we're gonna be considering seven tips for Christian dating. So tune in for that one. Until next time, soli deo glory. Thanks for listening to the Theotivity Podcast. If you found this content helpful or edifying, please leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help Theotivity reach others as well. Check out Theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.